And the problem of the Labour Party in the 70s and 80s is not complex, it's simple. Society changed and the party didn't. So you had a whole new generation of people with different aspirations and ambitions, a different type of world, and we were still singing the same old songs that people had sung in the 40s and 50s. I don't think anybody believed that you could have a Conservative government that would be able to maintain itself over four elections and remain in power uh, for what has been uh, 16 years. I think what Mrs Thatcher understood in 1979 was the need for change. I think what Labour failed to understand then was that change had to come about and that Labour should have been sponsoring change. And I think we've had to come to terms with that over a period of 16 years. I've seen so many failures based on the idea, give up everything you believe and you'll win. You give it up and you don't win. And then people say we didn't give up enough, so we've got to give up even more. And I think that is the tragedy, really, of the Labour Party since 19... Well, I suppose you say since 1974. It hasn't appeared to stand for anything. People are not fools. They see that. So they say, better the devil we know. Opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives, I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any dissent. Whatsoever. We know who the hard left is. The you know, ascendancy within the, within the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right to right wing hard left printing money. Nationalisation, everyone. I am Jack at Gapesology on Twitter. <laughs> I shouldn't still find my Twitter username funny, but when other people are on the line, I do. I've got Geraint with me, Wario Tifo, my usual comrade, Lieutenant, uh, Director of Strategy and Communications, brackets Mr. Seamus Milne. Hello. And we're joined by a very special guest. Yair unfortunately can't be here right now because of tech issues, but we're hoping that he will be able to join us as the conversation progresses. But we do have from Jacobin Magazine, from the fantastic Michael and Us podcast, one of one of my very favourite podcasts out there, Canada's own Luke Savage. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be here. It's awesome to have you, Luke. So we we ju- we just talked for a little bit. I always find it, it it's kind of strange to begin the show chat when you've already kind of the conversation has has long begun. But you know, <laughs> we were talking about Michael and us just now. It's uh, I mean, do you want to, you could probably explain better than I can what it is. <laughs> I mean, since you're a you're a listener and and it also I think I hope you'll indulge me to say that you're you know a fan as well. 
Absolutely. You might you might describe it more effusively than I could, but it is a podcast which began as uh, something of a novelty. Me and my co-host Will Sloan, you know, some of our earliest conversations ten or eleven years ago when we first met were about Michael Moore because, like so many people of our generation, his movies were really important to us. circa two thousand three, two thousand four, when we first dipped our toes into politics. And we thought it would be funny to revisit them in the midst of the 2016 American presidential election. And to our surprise and you know delight, enough people were listening and kind of stuck around that you know we ended up revisiting, or I suppose in many cases visiting for the first time, this whole kind of second tier of bargain basement anti-Michael Moore paraphernalia that, that American <laughs> yeah. conservatives had done. And then after that, you know, the podcast, I think we're sort of several seasons beyond that era of the show now, you know, it's kind of more of current affairs, culture, politics podcast, usually centering some kind of movie or cultural artifact, often from the kind of early and mid 2000s, but not not always. So, um, you know, running the gamut from the dumbest Dinesh D'Souza shit sandwich to Ingmar Bergman and, and Jean-Luc Godard, it's pretty esoteric, <laughs> but, um, you know, we uh, we have fun doing it. It's a great listen. And yeah, I think for the real politic connoisseur, if you burn through our back catalogue and you're looking for some shit to listen to, like Michael and us should absolutely be up your street. You know, we've wanted to have you on the show, Luke, for a while because we've got a lot of common ground. You're a big movie fan. You're obviously very much on on the hard left of politics, as they say. And (laughs) you're very interested in British politics. So that can extend to, you know, say, watching documentaries about British politics. Or, you know, it can extend to, say, you know, closely following the career of titans of, of the British political scene, <laughs> such as one Mr. Mike Gates. <laughs> so, you know, I was really surprised, I guess it was last weekend when, you know, I decided to have a, a go at him because I noticed that he boasts about his 2017 majority, which I guess was 43,700 <laughs> votes or something. He boasts about it in his Twitter bio, which is so funny because just the idea that this guy who'd been a Labour MP since 1992 thinks that suddenly like 10,000 new people or whatever it was like swung hard <laughs> for, for gapes is, is, is <laughs> so funny. But he tweeted at me and it's really funny because I saw my girlfriend the next day and she's like, can you stop tweeting at that Mike Gapes guy? Because every time you do, I have to be, I have to read his name and I have to be, <laughs> and it's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm afraid that the quest to bring Gapesology to North America is, is being somewhat frustrated by the people closest to me. But uh no. <laughs> I don't think I will it's ever get tired of hearing stories about the first time people realized that a man like Mike Gapes exists. <laughs> it's just a beautiful right. thing. I mean, there was a weird after the 2017 election there was this weird moment where a lot of people were in Mike Gapes' situation where having spent a couple of months saying oh we'll be lucky to cling on to our seats at all because of Corbyn they ended up with like increased majorities so you had this ridiculous situation (laughs) where you had about 100 MPs all going around basically implying or outright stating oh yeah I've increased my majority despite everything else you know, the Mike Gapes personal <laughs> vote wins again. And if they're all saying it, surely they're kind of proving themselves the, wrong the ga- there. 
well, the well, gate strategy finally paying off. 25 the- years. It's a slow burn <laughs> strategy. <laughs> you know, I got to meet some of Mike Gapes's fans, of course, because, you know, because he quote tweeted me, I think not once, but twice. I got to meet the type of person that would be a fan of Mike Gapes and that more importantly <laughs> would buy into this weird personal mythology he's constructed where suddenly... <laughs> Suddenly, I think for many, many of us on the left, 2017 was this great moment of validation because it's like, look, what we've believed all this time, it turns out we were right. And, you know, I guess Mike Gapes felt something very similar for very different reasons. It was like finally a vindication for for Gapesism. Um, (laughs) But... So all these, all these like fans were tweeting at me and I mean, the, yeah, they all clearly believe this. And when I clicked on, like, I want to, you know, who is this person? And they would always have like some kind of weird, I don't know, like a picture of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald with like an X through it or something like as their <laughs> avatar. And then the bio would always be like, you know, that thing where people will really awkwardly try to reclaim a term of abuse for themselves. But in, the, in, mm. in, but in this case, like it doesn't work because... They don't really understand that the terms of abuse are ironic anyway. Yeah. So these people that identify as like, I'm a centrist dad or like I'm a melt or something. It doesn't really work. So it was it was a lot of those guys. Yeah. A lot of it about. Yeah. 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 No, you do see some like shocking. But there's always just like a load of flags. They'll have like the British flag and the EU flag to show that they're a patriot, but mm-hmm. they're, they're an internationalist as well. And they'll have in the, the bio, yeah, like neoliberal, melt, Blairite, uh, <laughs> although Blairite is a made-up slur, don't call me a Blairite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they're incredible people. It, it but... is it is amazing how, I mean, I don't know how much time you guys spend on US politics Twitter, but it is very, it is so similar to like the aesthetic and all the moves of resistance Twitter in the States, yeah. which like where I guess like to be serious about it for like 20 seconds, a lot of it is... It's extremely online political engagement from people who tend to tilt older, are very disoriented by the world that we now live in, and have created like a whole alternative knowledge system whereby this world that was like basically okay until maybe 2015 was sort of Mm. undone by a combination of like Trotskyists and MAGA chuds or something. Like it's a very, yeah. it's a very weird. It's like in Britain, I guess the idea is like everything was okay until Brexit, or everything was okay until Corbyn took over yeah. the Labour Party, yeah. or, or whatever. Too in a lot of cases, I think. Yeah, for a lot. Yeah, of people. definitely. Yeah. So like all the RussiaGate, the hard, most hardcore kind of RussiaGate accounts, or the people that have made a whole identity since 2016 out of like hating. Susan Sarandon or whatever like it's that kind of stuff was very much on my mind when I was meeting for the first time the gapes heads yeah Yeah, it's the same people like these people would be like we need John Major to return to politics as (laughs) the head of a national unity government comprised of Michael Heseltine and then they'll list off this massive list of people and they were all in Margaret Thatcher's cabinets it's like half the Thatcher cabinet plus like one person involved in the SDP and then some Yeah, and then, like, (laughs) fucking John Major. And it's the same thing where they're all parading about the the new David Frum resistance book. Oh, God. You know, defending the degenerous George W. Bush picture. Like, you've got to reach across the divide to those we've got more in common with. You know, I haven't got more in common with George W. Bush or John Major than, you know, well, all right. 
I don't know, maybe than with a fascist, but that's not a fucking big yardstick, is it? Oh, right, this person's better than a Nazi, okay. <laughs> it, is, it is such a strange way of thinking about the world, and I mean, I guess on a human level, I am kind of sympathetic to it because, I mean, I find the world very disorienting and I grew up in it and, and, and sort of think about it as, you know, the main thing that I do. And I, yeah, and I still find it disorienting, but it is amazing how on both sides of the Atlantic, this particular type of political, you know, engagement, if you can call it Mm -hmm. that, what these people all seem to really want is like, they're nostalgic for a time when the world made sense. And then the resulting prescription is like, they want a sort of technocratic junta made up of all the characters that were in politics from their childhood, yes. sort of all mashed yeah. together, even if they're from different political tendencies, even if they hated each other 25 years ago and probably still hate each other now. That's what they want. As one of my... F- and it's reish... Oh, sorry. sorry. I was going to say... Uh, it's, it's like... Go ahead, go oh, ahead. But really, all right, you... Wait, which one of us is going to... I was just no, gonna, you, wait, you hang up. <laughs> this is the slick machine in action here. <laughs> wait, I'm going to say it now just in case I forget it because I spoke to Zoot before we started yeah. recording. But <laughs> um, wait, no, I've, I have forgotten it. Never okay, mind. Cool. Come on. Right, right, then, right. <laughs> I was just going to yeah, mention the, there was a tweet from a friend of the show, Ropes to Infinity, which is one of my favourites of all time. <laughs> it kind of sums this up where he said, as a sensible centrist, I am forever indebted to my hero, Tony Blair, for saving the country from the monstrous policies of my other hero, the great John Major. And that <laughs> is, I think, how a lot of these the people he's, he's taken the piss of actually look at it, where it's just, as you mentioned, it is like the big beasts from their time when they were first learning about politics. And they just, yeah, just I, want to bring think, them all I back they, and they, go back to a time they understand. They mm-hmm. find it very reassuring to think that the establishment, the people who've been running the country, whatever that country these melts are in may be, that these people were actually all quite reasonable all along. And somebody mm-hmm. comes along and is even worse and they're like... Oh, God, you know, I, I really miss the old guard. And, and, you know, when that article drops on BuzzFeed, which is just like, Donald Rumsfeld shot Trump a look that you'll never believe. <laughs> this is the biggest shade of the year. They're like, oh, thank God. You know, I always suspected that Rumsfeld was quite a reasonable guy. And, yeah. and, and of course, now that it matters, he's standing up for what I always knew he had in him. They love that shit because it makes them think, yeah, the natural order of the world is that things work. The people running things are basically benevolent for the most part. And it's an aberration that this guy in the White House or this guy in number 10 who i still want to stay prime minister by the way fuck that other guy (laughs) that they're in power now you know this is not normal yeah that's the starting point from all they come out with really that's almost become the core of their beliefs let's just bring it back to whenever the time it is i understand for some it's 1997 for some it's 2012 for some it's both so should we talk about the main event for today then i think there's a lot to chew on in this it's a seminal documentary series that it aired was it on bbc in 1995 yeah i think so yeah ident at the start of it so yeah yeah oh sorry i I got distracted by the thatcherite scott ident which uh far more iconic most problematic (laughs) phase of all uploads a million different documentaries that are really useful to have archived but he's called Thatcherite Scott and he puts like a 
the end of that first episode, there was just like one frame that was like, no wonder Maggie beat him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At the end of episode two, he editorializes again. There's a little caption which is just like, and I thought that Labour now were bad. <laughs> it's when Neil Kinnock finishes his barnstorming rendition of Bandiera Rossa at the end of episode two. Iconic. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's really good. I've got the song stuck in my head now. Yeah, I may have my political disagreements with Neil Kinnock. That's I mean, Lord I... Kinnock to you. <laughs> oh, yes, sorry. By which I mean I hate him, but... I've got to say, he has got a splendid set of pipes on him, and he really does knock it out of the park with that rendition of Bandiera Rosa. Like, he's singing, you know, all the... I think he sings Socialismo instead of Communismo, but still, like... Fucking melt to the end, man. He still... He sings Revolutioni, you know. He does... You know, he he keeps most of the radical bits it's it, it's not a full this land is your land style sanitization of a, of, a, of a socialist classic yeah he's even doing some harmony at one point you know props to the man but no obviously fuck neil kinnock but yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah labor the wilderness years are a series of four documentaries that chronicle the period of 18 years in which labor were out of power and the conservatives govern britain God, we've had half of that already. I mean, in the last nine years. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting documentary. It covers... Well, so it's, you know, called Labour the Wilderness Years. It doesn't focus on really what the government were doing. It's all about, like, the internal machinations within the Labour Party, the factional wars that engulf the party. And I think that there's a tendency to write off a lot of that stuff as destructive and unnecessary, but, you know, these were really important debates that shaped yes. the rest of the subsequent history of the Labour Party. So I watched these films, or this film, I should say, about 10 years ago for the first time. And I was pretty immersed in it because, for whatever reason, 10 years ago, I immersed myself in the history of the Labour Party. And I didn't know it at the time, but that immersion and everything I learned from it, studying this history, which is chronicled so richly in the film, it became immensely important because I think that so much of our modern kind of political malaise, the one which is only just sort of starting to lift, but I think is conceivably lifting for the first time in our lifetimes, understanding its roots, you really have to go through this history. And Britain is a particularly interesting case because more than I think any other Western democracy, the British working class and its vehicle, the Labour Party, had a harsher retrenchment and a worse series of defeats really than any other in the developed world. And that played out in these hideous and very unpleasant internecine conflicts within the party. And even though in some ways it all seems very esoteric in retrospect, I do think that it's very important because so much of today's centrist contingent, the people that are still invested in neoliberalism, one of the ways I understand their inflexibility and their intransigence and their hatred of the left is through the kind of sublimated traumas from this era. You know, this mm. belief that, and I get, we can get into more of this a little bit more detail later, but this belief that the further left you go, the more you lose. And so you have to give up progressively more to the point that giving things up becomes an identity unto itself. And the Neil Kinnicks of the film and the Roy Hattersleys and the Dennis Healys, you know, in their mm. mind, they're trying to save the Labour Party and they're trying to save Labour Britain from Thatcherism. 
and they think that giving things up is the way to do that. And But then by the time you get to the final part of the film, you realize, well, they gave up all this stuff and what they got was Blairism. They didn't save social democracy. They actually crippled it for two or possibly three decades. So I think this... History is very important to understand. Yeah, they ended up conceding so many arguments to the right that they created an incredibly infertile climate for the left to succeed in. It's a fascinating series of documentaries. I'm pretty sure of all the people interviewed in them, only Jeremy Corbyn is still an MP. Out of everyone yeah. in it, yeah. pl please correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I Gerald think, didn't Michael Meacher and Gerald Kaufman... I They've think died they died recently, as MPs, yeah. but quite re yeah, they, recently, they and I think they were still in Parliament. Last yeah. few years, yeah, yeah. Like. Gerald Kaufman was a year or so ago, and Michael Meacher was 2015. I think he supported Corbyn for leader, and yeah. very soon after that died. But yeah, I mean, Dennis Skinner doesn't show up, presumably because he doesn't talk to the BBC. John <laughs> McDonnell isn't in the movie either, is he? No, but he wasn't an MP until two years after this documentary was made. Oh, okay. So I mean, if it had focused more on... I mean, Ken Livingston does appear later on in it, but I think if it had focused more on yes. the GLC and on what was going on in London, then, then, then maybe McDonnell would have yeah. appeared. But he right. wasn't a national figure at, at the time that this was made. What I, about Diane Abbott? When did she... First First enter Parliament. 1987, so she was one of four black MPs, and this is using black in quite a broad term, defined as political blackness, so it included Keith Vaz, who was an Asian MP, but they were elected to Parliament on the Labour ticket in 1987. So it was Diane Abbott, Paul Boateng, who later joined the House of Lords, Bernie Grant, who was a, a like stalwart of the left of the Labour Party, and yeah, and Keith Vaz, who has recently Keith been deselected <laughs> in disgrace. Yeah. It's a shame, actually, that Gapes doesn't appear, because he'd been an MP for three years at the time that this documentary was made. Yeah, and he had very much strong views on pretty much all the subject matter discussed in all four episodes. Extremely strong views. Well, actually, if I watch parts three and four after this and Gapes appears, I will drop you guys a message. And let oh, you know. please do. Yeah. It sort of takes you right from just after Margaret Thatcher's victory in 1979. So there was a real pushback against the increasingly right-wing direction that James Callaghan's Labour government had been taking in the late 70s. So this manifested as an insurgent left within the party led by Tony Benn. Yeah, and you know, this film watches very differently now than when I first watched it because... I mean, one of the things that makes it so strange and so compelling is that, or did anyway, I think in a sort of pre-2015 world, I've not watched it since the first Corbyn leadership campaign, since well before that. The world we were living in then was still very much one where it seemed like, as it were, the so-called modernizers in the party did understand something about which way the winds were blowing, that the left maybe didn't, even if the Benites were right on basic moral and ideological grounds. The arc of the film is so strange because emotionally, the final episode, I think, is supposed to be I mean, it's kind of a higher point. I believe it's called The Pursuit of Power, right? And it's the implication mm. is that 
you know, the film is fairly balanced. It's not a criticism of the film, and it was made a long time ago, but I think the implication in a title like that is that finally the characters in the film have sort of done what's necessary to return to power. There was a, There's an almost kind of metaphysical sense that runs through a film like this that certain things were inevitable regardless of the left's attempts to push back on them. And yeah. one of the things that's really changed for me about this film is seeing the triumph of Corbynism within the Labour Party against all odds, and then its ultimate, no, let's just say it plainly, I mean, its ultimate success in British politics against all odds. I mean, that really changes how one experiences a film like this, because you think, well, not only were the Benites correct in their overall analysis, but actually, maybe they had more political agency than even this, you know, quite balanced history gives them credit for, you know, maybe if Tony Benn had won the deputy leadership contest or had somehow managed to become the leader of the Labour Party, maybe actually Thatcherism wasn't inevitable. And there's something very powerful in even having that thought. And it's not one that circumstances really permitted me to have the last time I watched the film. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a classic Labour right fix what James Callaghan did to prevent Tony Benn succeeding him as leader which was that he triggered a leadership election by resigning before key conference votes on party democracy that would have democratised the process of electing a leader had been put into action, which Ben, I think, rightly saw as a total stitch-up. But if that classic Labour right over the left must be stopped kind of skullduggery hadn't taken place, then I do think that Tony Benn may well have had a good shot in 1980 and I fucking you know with all due respect to Michael Foote who was a a great writer and intellectual and everything I think Tony Benn would have been a much more compelling national figure and much more electable leader than Foote was and wouldn't have conceded all the ground to the right that Foote did because although Foote came from the left of the party I think in function his leadership was basically a right-wing Labour leadership. Well, his function was to keep the right and the left of the party together, which is, seems to be the only mm. reason why he became leader at all, because Callahan wanted Dennis Healy to assume the leadership, and it sounds like Foote had to kind of be talked into it, and only yeah. really did it reluctantly because he thought that this was the only way to stop the Labour Party from splitting, which of course it, it did anyway, despite his best efforts. You feel bad for him watching the documentary. I mean, it, you, you see the way that he was treated by the press, and it's all the fucking shit that Corbyn gets now, and the shit that Ed Miliband got, and you're like, that's just fucking grim. Yeah, yeah. and you know, there's a scene, we were gonna watch that film about him, Labour's Old Romantic, right? That's I, I, a good documentary. So yeah. that that has a scene, and I haven't seen it for some years, a scene that last time I watched it, I found quite quietly revolting, which is towards the end of it, Gordon Brown is giving a speech in Michael Foote's honor. And he's kind of, you know, it's it's very good humored. It's not meant to be mean, but as I remember, my memory's a little foggy. It's sort of honoring Michael Foote as this amusing relic. And then there's someone mm. else, I think in the same scene, who has a little Michael Foote doll and he's pointing out, like, look, complete with donkey jacket and, and CND badge. And, yeah. and again, it's meant to be affectionate, but it's, it's actually quite quietly contemptuous of the sort of older radical traditions in the Labour Party, of which Foote is in many ways a reflection. So, yeah, yeah I feel very bad for him watching this movie and even 
recalling like when he died, what the sort of generalized take on his career was, which was that he was this figure out of time. As you point out, the way that as people sanitized this figure and caricatured him, just kind of turned him into yeah, this, this like stupid old out. Well, not I think everyone would have said that he was an intelligent man, but this very kind of out of touch, woolly radical. Yeah. But the same thing almost happened to Tony Ben towards the end of his life. And, you know, if you read the later Ben diaries, he fucking hated it he uh, really did not like that he was no longer dangerous well he used to say i was once the most dangerous man in britain and now they call me a national treasure you know <laughs> yeah. he's yeah. like i yeah, might that... i might be a kindly old man but i'm not harmless that's something he said somewhere you've got to have a socialist perspective now the word socialism is spelled, spelled uh, spat out on the media as if it was a sort of disease they they get a picture of somebody sometimes me with his hands out and his eyes open socialism they say and the children are put to bed and mother has a, uh, <laughs> mother has another oval teen and uh, and uh, settles down to her novel from the boots library and uh, people hope it'll all go away but that's not how it's pronounced it is uh, social Ism. It's about trying to construct a society around production for need and not just for profit, around meeting people's needs. That's what it's about. His improvised oratory won over the union activists. To the fury of the leadership, a ballot forcing the union to back Ben for deputy was carried. I was livid. With There's that fantastic old speech from Ben that they show in, I think, the second part of the documentary, maybe, where, where he's just kind of like, you read all these, these stories and they tell you socialism and then they put the kids to bed and... <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's, M- mother settles it's... down to a, a boot book from the Boots Library and a cup of Ovaltine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what a fantastic orator. So good. You know, a brilliantly witty man, but the fact was that that was how he was portrayed, as this dangerous it's like the way that people have portrayed Corbyn, the literally the most unthreatening person in the world. Yeah. It's like, you know, just fire-breathing, basically St- Stalinist, a yeah. Yeah, forget yeah. the terrorist lover stuff. He'd do it himself if he could, you know. If he, thought, <laughs> if he didn't have the press watching him all the time, he'd be out there bombing left, right, and centre. But it kind of is sad to see Michael Foote in the documentary. You don't feel sorry for Neil Kinnock, though. No. Again, to do my bad Tony Benn impression again, he sold out every principle he had for power and didn't even win it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Have you guys done, on the subject of Neil Kinnock, have you guys done that film, Labour, The Summer That Changed Everything? Because that's got some amazing Kinnock footage in it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we've got an episode on that from a while back, which we named it the original title of the film, as I understand it, The End of (laughs) Labour. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I'm genuinely, it was like Dan Hancock's, the journalist said on Twitter a while back that I, I think like someone at the BBC said to him that was the original title of the film. The scene in that where the Kinnock family is reacting to the results oh, yeah. and they have this look of just, they're just stunned and, and they're a bit like scared almost. <laughs> that That's the look on their faces. And then they're just wandering around in the darkness and, and you hear Neil Kinnock say, well, it's all very confusing, Stephen. <laughs> But it's still very perplexing, Steve. Yeah. Well, it's uh, reasonable and it's, it's, you know, it's a lot of common sense mainstream legal policies in the manifesto. Yeah. Hi. Hi, guys. All right. All right. 
Cheers. Yeah, I think he's like, it's, it's, it's very peculiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you hear Kinnock kind of like muttering to himself, like, well, we had all those uh, common sense labor policies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just, immediately like, trying to rationalize it all, yeah. <laughs> yeah, where, where did those common sense labor policies come from, Neil? And why didn't labor have them yeah. before 2015? <laughs> <laughs> I like at the end of the film where he's sort of very mournfully walking on the beach in like Blackpool or something or Brighton, wherever that is. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and he's like, uh, well, uh, you know, uh, all these young activists that are coming in the party, I mean, what they need to realize is we need each other. And it's like, mate, they do not need you. <laughs> Don't fool <laughs> yourself. I'm like so much older than these young people coming into Momentum. Those young guys, they need me and I need them. And if we can make that work, uh, then that's a... That's a fantastic opportunity for the party. That's the magic of a political movement, if you can bring those two things together. But if those two things diverge, we're lost. So you can sit here and say, we need them, they need me. Would they say that they need you? I hope so. I really hope so. Um... (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Although Stephen Kinnock, I think... You know, that documentary really did put the fear of God into him and Lucy Powell. Yeah. Like, I, I, I still don't think either of them have got good politics or anything, but they, they both generally behave very well in public, at least. Uh, yeah. Now they, they don't want to, they don't want to be alienating people uh, too much after that. I think they really don't want to get deselected. Although they're not under much fucking threat. I mean, no one gets deselected. That was obviously actually a big debate at the time that the first Wilderness Years documentary depicts. It was, you know, whether MPs should be accountable to members. And, you know, whether MPs should be accountable to members is almost the historic mission of the Labour left because of the idea that you can't hope to democratise a country if you can't democratise your own party and have MPs that are actually speaking on behalf of the people who comprise the party. And you get some interesting interviews in the documentary, for example, fuck, what's his name? Geraint, I was asking about him in one of the group chats earlier, in the Corbyn's Militant Pals group chat. Joe Ashton. So he was Tony Benn's political secretary. Luckily, we've got a few friends on hand, like, you probably know Max (coughs) Shanley, Luke. Yeah, yeah. Max is the most knowledgeable person about Labour history I've ever met. And our friend Tom Blackburn, who's Malaise Forever on Twitter, and he's one of the best writers at New Socialist and like Mm -hmm. on the left in general, I think. He's got an article in The Guardian today, and he made the playlist that I sent you of all the left wing (laughs) documentaries on it. (laughs) So I asked these guys for some background on Joe Ashton, because I thought it was interesting, because he seemed to be coming from at least a background on the left. Kind of old left type perspective, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But he's just in this documentary being a complete fucking belt, just being like, oh no, we can't have the deselections. And and, um, (laughs) he says, I mean, again, he's like a very articulate guy and and the thing is like i feel like a massive political junkie which is a terrible category you know politics should be about the values and convictions not loving the theater of it all but i do love the theater of it all in labor the wilderness years everyone interviewed including the people i hate are so fucking eloquent and loquacious and they (laughs) you know they're, they're such good interviews but i just love all these fucking people as raconteurs like oh, I yeah. wish some of them have never gone into politics but you know I can fucking you know David Owen is fa- fantastic to listen to terrible man but <laughs> <laughs> Neil Kinnock probably because he's still present and doing a lot of interviews like it's a less of a and he was leader for 
several years. It's less of a shock to kind of see him and be like, oh yeah, Neil Kinnock. He... Mm -hmm. But Joe Ashton, he kind of explains how, oh, Tony Benn always... He loved the working class people. He was never he was never more comfortable than just talking to working class people and like ha having a pint with them or whatever, something like that. And he says this very wonderfully phrased, but actually quite like condescending thing about Tony Benn. It's basically the idea that Tony Benn was this out of touch middle to upper class radical. Well, that's Dennis but, Healy's take on Tony Benn as yeah, well, right? Yeah, he read Marx in his 50s and he really <laughs> thought it was fantastic. <laughs> his socialism derived from Karl Marx, the Bible, and the heroes of the English Civil War. I don't think he was ambitious for himself, but he had this wonderful image of the working class. It was rather like the noble savage sort of thing. And I used to have to bring him down to earth sometimes. I think he came from a, a rather aristocratic background, uh, and he, he enjoyed the company. He was never happier than in a miners' institute or uh, among working people. He liked their company, he liked the way they were open and honest and had a pint of beer, and uh, he enjoyed being with them. And they looked up to him and they respected him. And, and it really was a bit like the Governor General of Yorkshire, you know, something like that. I've never regarded Tony as a careerist or opportunist. I think he genuinely had a conversion. He read Marx for the first time when he was in his 50s and thought he was absolutely marvellous and told us so. But, of course, he was exactly the sort of feudal socialist, the upper-class socialist, who was satirised by Karl Marx himself in the Communist Manifesto as a man who could make the bourgeoisie cringe with the wit of his satire, but basically totally ineffective in politics because of a total failure to understand the way in which the world was changing. And that was enormously true of Tony. I mean, if Tony had been right, Thatcher would never have been elected. But again, Dennis Healy, I despise him, but he's brilliant in this documentary. <laughs> if this was an actor, it would be like Academy Award stuff. I guess one of the strengths of the film is that when history is sort of revealed to you in this way, I mean, it is interesting to think about, like, you see all the factors that were influencing these people and their takes on politics generally, but also on kind of the actual reasons for the defeat in 1979 and where they thought the Labour Party should go. And what's very challenging about it is that you realize that at least for most of them, there actually was some coherence to how they reacted to these events, which is what I think makes the film accidentally a kind of genuine tragedy in the classical Greek sense. I mean, of these were all people pulled because of circumstance in a particular direction, which ended up being calamitous in different ways for all of them. I find that very compelling about it because the film doesn't take a position either way. All of these people are these labor politicians who have different points of view depending on what part of the country they're in, where their constituency is, or what their role was or wasn't in the previous labor government, what their relationship to their local actors activists is or whatever, I guess what they think the actual mission of the left is, which I guess is a little more abstract, but all of those things kind of inflect how they experience the same events. And because they're all such wonderful speakers, as you said, that makes this, I mean, on an intellectual level, it's interesting, but as you said, again, as a spectacle, it's pretty unmatched. Labour's leaders blamed the trade unions and the strikes during the winter of discontent for their election defeat in 1979. 
the workers voted against the consequences of their own irresponsibility. And that, of course, is what put uh, Mrs. Thatcher in. So, again, an example of something in the documentary, once again from Dennis Healy, that I think is an appalling comment, but, you know, he really nailed it as, as, uh, as a Dennis Healy zinger. He says, The workers voted against the consequences of their own irresponsibility. <laughs> like, that's classic, like, patronising, paternalistic labour rightism. That's also Just very like, eloquent. Yeah, no one on the labour right can fucking put their obnoxious ideas that well now a, a bit about dennis healy that i thought were again like awful man fascinating character but I, I thought was great was when the narrator explains dennis healy's campaign was curiously low-key and his manner aloof <laughs> when he was asked to write an article for the guardian to the amazement of his right-wing supporters he refused. <laughs> Dennis Healy's campaign was curiously low-key and his manner aloof. When he was asked to write an article for The Guardian, to the amazement of his right-wing supporters, he refused. His rivals, by contrast, were happy to oblige. And it, doesn't he end up, it ends up saying something like, Healy confines himself to the odd joke or something. Yeah, like his yeah, campaign is just him going around yeah. giving this stump speech and mostly not being very well received because the trade union rank and file doesn't really support him, but the trade union leaders often do, you know? Mm. So his campaign yeah, was, has a weird tone. Was this about uh, when he ran for deputy in... Uh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Or it might have been when he ran for leader against Foote in Yeah, I might be getting it, might be getting yeah, it there was a bit. Because yeah, he won the second time, mm. but he really fucked up his campaign against Foote. Yeah, because there was a bit with one of the Welsh MPs who's just making really strange comments about how they're going through all the usual sort of, oh, he's one of the, the big bruisers of politics talk and that, and he's like, ah, but sometimes he'd come in and have banter with you and he'd do shadow boxing and stuff. And like, that's, <laughs> that's an almost disturbing image. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so yeah. impossible to imagine. Yeah, I love all the bits about just Dennis Healy is the most, again, the, probably my least favourite person, but the most compelling character in the documentaries because you have people coming on like, uh, you know, Dennis would just, he'd just shout and swear at people. And he'd, <laughs> I walked out into the parliamentary lobby one day and Dennis was just there using the most appalling language. And, um... He is a thug and he, over, over the years, I think, gratuitously or otherwise, offended large numbers of his colleagues on one occasion or another. Uh, I remember him prowling up and down the, the gangway on, on the, the occasion of one vote, uh, swearing in the most dreadful language at his colleagues. But yeah, I just come back to that thing of The Guardian being like, hey, Dennis, do you want an article? And he's just like... No, no. <laughs> I just imagine a right-wing Labour MP in this day and age turning down some column inches in the Guardian. Just impossible to fathom. In but I mean, you know, it's Healy is a good thing to hone in on for a sec because the other thing that makes this film, you know, it makes for strange viewing because you start out in part one where the right-wing figures are like Dennis Healy and Roy Hattersley, and then I guess increasingly like Shirley Williams and David Owen and stuff. But then by the time you get to part four. Those people are gone, and now it's like Peter Mandelson and people like that. Yeah. And you realize that it's not nostalgia or treacly romanticism to admit that the figures of the labor right, the old labor right, were of much higher caliber than the figures of the new labor right. I mean, they were <laughs> creatures of a time, they were conservatively minded people, but that was relative to the time they lived in. And the time they lived in was one where 
social democratic politics and working class politics were much, much thicker and more robust. And so part of the arc of the movie is you're not just seeing the defeat of Tony Benn and the labor left, you're also seeing the defeat of of their adversaries, their conservatively minded adversaries and their replacement by these mutants. Yeah, you're seeing the defeat, not just of socialism, but of like old right wing trade unionist social democracy. Which was the um... the thing that those people were all purportedly working to save, right? They were like, if we can just get rid of the hard left. I'm afraid it's the hard left. If we can just shake it off, then we can win a general election on something that's basically like a sort of labor program from sort of the mid-1970s or whatever. We can govern like Harold Wilson again and things will be fine. And it turns out that doing that is not only insufficient as a weapon against the right, but it ultimately means that by the time you've gone through this 18 years of defeats and hideous retrenchments, what comes out the other side isn't just a reinvigorated pre-Thatcherite social democracy. It's actually something that is further to the right of how c- the, the conservatives govern. Yeah, further to the right, oh, of, yeah, the, yeah. To the, right of the SDP well, and to the but, right but of the even how old well, Tories yeah. governed. You know, it's like to the right of Edward Heath. Definitely. And as you touched on, the old right in the party were usurped by the modernizers in the form of Blair, Brown, Mandelson, who actually came from supposedly the left, or, or the soft left of the party. You know, from the MPs who'd split off from the left, but that Kinnockite kind of tradition within the party mutated into the Blairite modernizers. So they weren't really actually that incredibly right-wing tradition within the party wasn't really formed from the right of it necessarily although obviously once those people Blair Brown Mandelson had done the groundwork then obviously people who had been in the fucking SDP like Andrew Adonis or whatever all kind of came and flocking to the party I have a friend called Jack actually who considers himself on the right of the Labour Party and he when I made the mistake once of saying oh you know Blair and Brown were committed right wingers and they still supported Neil Kinnock because of modernization he's like nope nope he's like whoa 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 I'm a I'm a staunch supporter of Hugh Gateskill yeah, well, no, literally, though. That is actually his his politics. Like, not, no, it's it's not the same thing as, <laughs> as what what Blair and Brown became. They're a fucked up kind of, you know, the soft left having sold out all his principles, and that's, I guess, why they didn't come off across as this kind of like socially conservative macho sort of old labor right thing that comes out of trade unions. This is one of the things that's really important to understand about Blairism, and I think that a lot of people. Blairism predictably has sort of become a shorthand for just selling out the left and pivoting to the center, which obviously colloquially anyway makes sense. But one of the things that I think is important to understand about it is that it was very good at appropriating a sort of progressive political lexicon, right? Like this was what these people, this is how these people thought of their project. We're the modernizers, we're the progressives. And that was married to a rhetoric of kind of conservative realism. Like we're just bringing the country and the Labour Party in sync with things as they actually are, not how we want them to be. And as they were doing this, a lot of them were still embracing, in some cases, pretty strongly, their identities as members of the Labour Party and even as democratic socialists. I mean, the famous Clause 4 amendment, right, which got rid of the, uh, I guess, 1918 Clause 4, Mm. you know, it still begins with the Labour Party as a democratic socialist party. And I think that obviously in some ways that must have been a kind of just concession to 
what remained of yeah. the left. But I think also Absolutely. that residual identity is like, we actually are the left is very yeah. important to understanding the character of Blairism because now people that are practicing Blairites such as they still exist, they're not ideologues. They don't have any intellectual dynamism like the original Blairites. Like they are practitioners of just this ludicrous dead dogma, like Chukka Muna. I mean, you know, we, we, the same formula we applied before, if Tony Blair is a climb down from Dennis Healy, Chukka Muna is a climb down from Tony Blair. You know, he is like oh, a lesser caliber than Tony Blair or Gordon Brown. Well, exactly. And yeah, Chuck is in the Blairite mold. But if you look at Gordon Brown's fucking successors, they're all just like idiot thugs. They're just like Michael Duggar and people. Most of them aren't even fucking in Parliament anymore because they're just so like deeply personally unpleasant and fucking thick. Yeah. But no, no one's got any use for them, including the right of the Labour Party. I mean, although on the Watson was genuinely oh, the the brains of that operation, you know, which which says a lot. Yeah. Really, he's kind of failed miserably yeah. in his goals, but at least he's kept a high profile doing it. On the subject of the right of the Labour Party. I think what's interesting is the fact that the phrase, the Labour right, Labour's right-wingers, people in Labour with right-wing views, they recur so much in these documentaries. It was still clearly common parlance at the time that Labour had a left and a right. Now journalists in the UK find it very, you know, sort of impolite to refer to the Labour right as the right. Stephen Bush, who I don't like his politics so much, but he's better than your average journalist in the UK. He thinks that it's very rude to call the Labour right the Labour right, possibly because he is on the Labour right. But I think that actually this hasn't just disappeared for no reason. What happened was that with the total capitulation and defeat of the left, capitulation in the form of Neil Kinnock, defeat in the form of Tony Benn, there was really no left for the Labour right to contrast them with anymore. They just became Labour. They became their hallowed centre. And political discourse in Britain just kind of followed the lead that the party had taken until Labour no longer had a right. It just had a left and moderates real labor values like Mike Gapes, etc. you know. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I still think about the 2015 leadership contest a lot because I can't remember who wrote the article or where it even appeared, but there was a very perceptive column someone wrote about how the three non-Corbyn candidates, so Andy Burnham, Yvette Cooper, and Liz Kendall, how they all embodied aspects of Ed Miliband's contradictions. You know, they were all, <laughs> and I still think about that a lot because I think that campaign, if you subtract Corbin from it, is so emblematic of how exhausted the whole thing was post the 2015 defeat, but also even by the time Brown had gotten finished in 2010. And it's funny because the reason it came to mind is because in some ways, Cooper, Kendall, and Burnham, I mean, their ideological differences were barely real at all. They had differences of rhetorical emphasis and stuff. And I mean, clearly Andy Burnham was more progressive in terms of his instincts than Liz Kendall. But I mean, he still launched his campaign. I think he did one of his first campaign events in front of, was it even in the city of London or something? And yeah, he talked yeah, about yes. how I want labor to be the party of aspiration, not of envy or something yeah. like that. And then he got offered a load of money and an endorsement by the biggest trade union in the country, Unite. And he said, no, I will not take your money. Yeah. Uh, obviously hoping some corporate fucks would reach out to him and give him money instead. Mm -hmm. But 
as it was Unite were just like, well, there's this other guy now called Jeremy Corbyn and, yeah. you know, <laughs> the rest is history. So it's like you had those three figures who, I mean, all of them, I guess, aesthetically represented different internal labor traditions, but those traditions weren't really connected to anything real anymore. Mm. Like you had Liz Kendall was the only committed Blairite and then you had Yvette Cooper. So like Liz Kendall's thing was we have to embrace austerity in order to oppose it. That's the only way to be against, the only way to defeat Tory austerity is to completely capitulate to it. Then you had Yvette Cooper, who was a sort of traditional soft left candidate who's just trying to sort of achieve party unity. I think that's generous, frankly. Well, like, I mean, I think a she... Sort of brownite tradition. Well, brown, yeah, it, fair enough. Right wing. Fair enough, a brownite tradition. But I mean, just rhetorically, my memory was that her whole pitch was to really have no hard edges of any kind. And then he had, yeah, you had you had Andy Burnham, who was, I guess, closer to the Ed Miliband soft left, and I guess had been involved in it as well, if I'm not much mistaken. But he has the Northern accent and stuff. And so even a lot of the people, I'm not remembering any specific names, but I feel like some of the columns that I remember reading in support of him at the time, almost explicitly were like, well, he kind of sounds like a traditional labor voters, so that's just aesthetically useful to us. And there was really very little engagement with his politics at all, which if they were pitching anything, it was still to the right of even what Ed Miliband was doing. Oh, definitely. All of them were to the right of Ed Miliband. I mean, they, that, yeah. that was just kind of the consensus. Mm -hmm. Basically, they'd all fucking spent too much time watching the Wilderness Years documentaries. <laughs> and when Labour were defeated in 2015, every MP, grandee, senior person in the party was just like, well, clearly that, you know, absolutely piss-weak manifesto with fuck all in it was just incredibly, wildly, unrealistically left-wing and the second <laughs> longest suicide note in history. <laughs> they were all like, yep, yeah, we need to move to the right, and they were all completely sure of this, and the thing is they just didn't think to ask Labour members yeah. who were obviously like, no, no, what the fuck, Ed Miliband wasn't even that left-wing, what the fuck are you talking about? That moment is an amazing bracket to the events captured in the wilderness years because like 1979, 2015, it wasn't a Labour government being defeated, but it was a very disheartening defeat. And just like mm. after 1979, you had these kind of competing explanations, as I think someone in the film, maybe it's Peter Shore, says, as he puts it, competing explanations for what the causes of the defeat were. And it seemed like in the first few weeks after the defeat, when that campaign was going, and it was like, oh, you know, the leading candidates like Tristram Hunt, all these guys... Yeah. It just Dan seemed Jarvis like this well. was Dan Jarvis, right? All these guys. And it felt <laughs> yeah. like this was going to result in like an even further pivot to the right. Yeah. It was going to continue the process that we've been discussing for the last, you know, 20 or 30 minutes of the party just moving further and further and further to the right steadily from 1979 onward to the point where even Ed Miliband is considered too left wing. And then the party, the next incarnation ends up being to the right of even new labor. And yeah. yet what we got was something quite extraordinary that I think very few people expected and which has opened up horizons of possibility, not just in Britain, but you know around the world that I never would have expected to open up in those few very dispiriting weeks weeks after the 2015 election. Labour's loss in 2015 felt like a historic defeat for the left, even though the left hadn't been in the driving seat on it. Yeah. The fact that, I mean, a lot of people hadn't, and that was a problem. A lot of people on the left couldn't bring themselves to back Labour under Miliband, but the left, at least within the Labour Party, had been broadly supportive of him. 
and it hadn't worked out. And then, yeah, instantly the dial turned, like, the Guardian editorials, like, Labour has lost touch with people by not appealing to, like... It was like, uh, they lo- lo- their aspirational, their aspirational value. It's lost yeah. touch with the average person who has been redefined as being a sort of upwardly mobile middle-class person whose main mission in life is to be a property owner and who wants economic growth for the purposes of having more and more consumer goods, and that's what the average person is and what they want. That was the kind of discourse, as I remember. And everyone that didn't fit that category was a kind of central casting northerner who just really wanted to stop immigrants coming in. That was the two types of people that existed and who Labour needed to do everything (laughs) toward. And Labour to triangulate between those two groups. Because one of the things, I mean, I guess it's dead and buried now, but do you guys remember Blue Labour? Which was that, please correct me if I'm getting it wrong, but I remember that was associated with that guy, John Crudus, and it was like, as I recall... Again, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to embarrass myself. I'm just laughing because I'm good friends with his son. Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, definitely correct me if I'm getting it wrong. But as I remember, the basic pitch of New Labour was this weird New Labour plus workerism where it was like, we have to meet the real existing working class where they are. And where they are is economic policies that are sort of somewhat to the left of new labor in some qualified respects, but then social conservatism on top of it and sort of dog whistling about immigrants and things like that. Is that about what that... Am I getting that right? Broadly, that, yeah, that's yeah. My understanding they've, of it. they've moved around a little bit <laughs> yeah. here and there, but well, what I will say, just to give the Blue Labour lads a fair hearing, nothing to do with the fact that one of the formative people on it, I know a relative of his nothing to nothing to do with that my right-wing friend (laughs) a different person says that blue labor was initially a bit more interesting and was into like communitarianism and stuff and all that and you know i still think it's kind of bollocks just like people want to be in their communities and small towns and just like they want industry back well they they want no they want jobs they want a national health service but he says but then they just got bogged down in like the racist stuff and that's a perspective of someone initially more sympathetic to them but my perspective has always been that they're bad can we talk about the election a bit i'm very curious what it's been like for both of you and what your feelings about it are at this point oh god well you know it's kind of it's put a bit of it's it put a bit of fire in my belly to quote the appalling neoconservative british journalist james bloodworth like a fabricated thread that he wrote which was supposed to be a working class welsh person talking about corbyn and it was all like oh it doesn't have the fire in his belly <laughs> just all <laughs> spelt like phonetically as yeah. well so fire was like with a y he was uh, typing it in y. that bad accent just there basically you could tell yeah yeah <laughs> literally that no, I, I, that's my best impression yet because it's an accurate representation <laughs> of what was on the page but yeah this has put a bit of fire in my belly because i was getting a bit jaded because it was all just fucking about you know it's a brexit brexit but having another boring parliamentary vote in parliament as opposed to parliamentary votes outside of parliament what the fuck am i talking about and it was all like uh are we gonna have an election no we're not no no just gotta talk about brexit some more no election till we've sorted brexit and so it had resulted in pretty much for like the first time since labor lost the election in 2015 but i've just been like oh i can't be fucking asked for this with politics (laughs) because i was gonna say earlier like after ed Miliband was defeated in 2015 and resigned the rhetorical turn to the right 
among like the centre left, among pro Labour commentators in the press, among Labour MPs and grandees of the party, it felt like more of a defeat to me than the re-election of the Conservative Party. Yeah, because it seemed like indefinitely ceding the terms of debate to the Conservative Party in a way that would kill off the left's chances in the future. It felt like these people were trying to close the door on anything. There were directions taken that would have been to the right of Ed Miliband that would still have been too left-wing for this approach. And I felt it was morally unconscionable. If we're on the left, then we do not believe that policies to the right of what we just suggested at this election are right you know i didn't believe that a lot of the policies at that election were right so i've basically not been able to stop thinking about politics since jeremy corbyn became leader because it feels it feels like ever since labor lost the election in 2015 there's been like a battle for the soul of the left itself you know for the left's survival because the stakes are so high if corbynism fails then this will be used as an even bigger bludgeon against the left than ed miliband there'll be more of a left now than there was in 2015 to start picking up the pieces but it would still be horrific and there would still be a massive defeat for labor in this election just as it would have been in 2017 would be an enormous vindication for like all the worst people in society basically project summer 2015 part two i'm sure would be rolled out instantly but probably with a slightly more leftist veneer which is what we've got to worry about i think it would be more centrist talk but couched in the terms of like a kind of pseudo corbynism yeah that, that we've got to worry about it would be an, an so, attempt so at the again, smith thing again wouldn't it yeah it would be and so basically long story short i think that this election is a battle for the fucking heart of socialism <laughs> No pressure. Not to make the stakes sound like unreasonably high or anything. No, but they are tremendously high, you're right. They are. Given that all of us here would agree that the survival of the planet depends on socialism, then I think that, you know, a battle for the heart of socialism is... uh, It's a big battle. (laughs) An important one. Huge. Huge, as Mr. Mr. Trump would say. That's something that watching the Wilderness Years documentaries has got me thinking about again. That again, there was a huge shift to the right in the country in the late 70s and in the 80s. And some people in the Labour Party on the left went, this is unconscionable that this shift to the right happens but we can't combat it by shifting to the right ourselves. And they lost that fight. And, you know, I really don't think that we can afford to lose that fight in this current context. I mean, I wish I had something kind of sagely to add to that, but, you know, obviously I have no insight into what's going to happen. (laughs) In fact, you would both know better than me, but my sense from following, I've been following pretty closely, is that in spite of having the usual steep hill to climb, the Labour campaign has got off to a very good start. The Conservatives do seem to be quite scared. They seem to be making a number Mm. of blunders. Boris Johnson does not seem to be the populist pro-whisperer that so many sort of metropolitan (laughs) commentators have insisted he is for such a long time. I just saw right before we started recording that it's taken four days after those floods in the north for him to visit and he's not speaking to 
the media, as far as I can tell. This guy, once he gets outside of Westminster, is sort of useless. He's not somebody that actually has his finger to the pulse of hey the, now, the average hey person. Now, hey now. He's great on panel shows. Okay. <laughs> which is, which <laughs> well, no, is... that's why he's fucking prime minister. So I, I'm uh-huh. being sarcastic there. <laughs> right, right, right. But yeah, the conservatives don't seem to be doing particularly well in some ways. And I think the Labour manifesto, when that's launched, is going to be a big deal. I think the televised debate mm-hmm. between Johnson and Corbyn is going to be really important. And I will certainly be watching it in real time. But yeah, I mean, it seems like Labour has the actual excitement and the energy. And the task now is to convert that into a vote which equals the 2017 one or takes it hopefully even further. had an election in Canada, didn't you? I did not follow that as closely as you've been following our one. Very briefly, do you want to give us a rundown on the situation over there? Yeah, it was a strange election because it was a very sleepy kind of low stakes election going in and then it had There was a kind of an unexpected surge for the NDP, which is the Social Democratic Party in Canada with which I've had some involvement. And it didn't translate into a gain in seats on election night. The NDP actually lost seats, but what was so strange was that the Tories and Liberals, the kind of two traditional ruling parties, also both had a very bad night. There's no election in Canadian history where their combined vote share was so low. And Justin Trudeau continues as prime minister, but he has the humiliation of being the only prime minister in Canadian history to have a mandate of only 33% of the popular vote. No one has ever governed Canada with that. So we're in a very strange purgatory here, and there's not much to say more about the election. I mean, I was on Navarra, I guess, a couple days before the election. People can go and check that if they want my thoughts in more detail. Also wrote some Jacobin articles after the fact. But yeah, we're in a strange political purgatory here, and it feels weird to spend so much time thinking about what's going on in the UK and what's going on in the United States, because right now, anyway, things there seem a bit higher stakes and I guess a little more advanced. We haven't quite gotten the memo in Canada yet that like the entire political class hasn't quite got the memo that this is actually a very important and formative political moment. <laughs> Your Tories have always seemed quite bad to me. They always basically seem like our Tories. Do you think they're quite close? They're a very strange hybrid of British Toryism and 90s Republicanism. It's oh, really okay. Okay, weird. Okay, that's probably worse. <laughs> so if you go to, like I have been on a number of occasions to the biggest gathering of the conservative movement in Canada, um, m- mostly, nice. mostly out of curiosity. And it is really interesting. And culturally, it is this really weird mix of, I guess, British Toryism and also 
weird curiosity about the European far right. Like they once had Nigel Farage or also Mark Stein was their keynote speaker one year. But then I would say Canadian conservatives are sort of obsessed with the Republican Party in the way that 1930s leftists in Western Europe were obsessed with the Soviet Union. They feel (laughs) the Republican Party is their kind of cool big brother. I remember one time when Ron Paul came from the United States to address this conference and he was actually a guest in the gallery during a parliamentary debate. And I was watching the debate and you could see all these conservative cabinet ministers, these people that control multi-billion dollar budgets. And they kept looking up nervously at the gallery because they were so terrified that Ron fucking Paul was here watching them. They were so nervous in front of him. So (laughs) in the same way that Canada culturally is a weird mix, notwithstanding Quebec, which is kind of its own thing, Canada is culturally a weird mix of somewhere between Britain and the United States, both culturally and politically. I think that's also reflected in this weird hybrid character of our conservatives as well. And the liberals, I mean, they're obviously in government. How do they compare to liberals around the world? The US liberals, the UK liberals who we've discussed. Well, we've mostly discussed kind of like UK old style social democrats today. But you know, you know, what our liberals are like. I mean, they would be... The Gapes fans. (laughs) I mean, they would be to the right of your typical European social democrat. They are a truly catch-all party. They are a cultural and political and ideological cipher. They are like a sort of giant political consultancy firm. And the one strength that they have, I mean, I'm not in the habit of complimenting them. In fact, they've helped me clarify and sharpen my political identity in terms of <laughs> around a visceral dislike of liberalism in many Isn't ways. Isn't that what the center-left is for? <laughs> to clarify things for leftists? Uh-huh. <laughs> but I mean, if I was to give them one compliment, it would be that they are very dexterous, very effective at figuring out which way the winds are blowing and coming up with sort of perfect median pitch during an election campaign that will bring over just enough progressively minded people who might be left curious and sort of more conservatively minded suburban voters or whatever. They're so, so good at that. And they are the most successful I would have to verify this and people might dispute it, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say they are the most electorally successful political party, at least in the West, since the advent of mass suffrage. I mean, they have governed Canada with... There's only been a handful of interludes. They've governed Canada for most of the 20th century. Oh, wow. So in that respect, they're more like the British Tories. Absolutely. And, you know, they have the part of British Toryism that thinks of itself as sort of Burkean and incrementalist and about, like, I remember the first time I read Michael Oakeshott and he talks about how politics should be the quintessential British Tory philosopher in some ways. I remember him Mm. talking about how for him, you know, politics is all about tending to to the arrangements of society rather than making them. My first thought was, this is just our liberal party. This is how they think about politics, that they think of themselves as, I mean, it's just that with a sort of middle-class managerial streak added on top of it, basically. You know, it's like technocratic expertise plus Toryism. But yeah, there are a lot of similarities between a certain kind of British Toryism and our liberals. And it also sounds kind of like what Blairism wanted to be, except instead of creating an unstoppable election-winning machine. They created a very finite election-winning machine yeah, that I, kind of stopped working. I've never, I've never quite, I've never heard it put 
in quite in those terms, but I actually think that's exactly right. And one of my big fears after 2015, when the liberals returned to power here was, I thought these people have finally invented a formula where the American Democrats have failed, where the labor right have failed, where all manner of technocratically minded so-called center left people have failed. These guys have succeeded. They figured out the perfect fusion of vulgarized sort of woke social justice politics, social media savvy, clickbait, and kind of very traditional technocratic, you know, center right <laughs> governance. I thought yeah. these guys have, they've actually done it. And I thought they are bound to be in power for 12 or 15 years. And this is going to be copied the world over. And this is now going to be the thing that we're going to have to deal with. Like this is going to be in some ways, one of the great adversaries in the 21st century, this kind of neoliberalism with a human face, like we've never seen yeah. before. And so if, if there's one thing that's heartening to me about our election results a few weeks ago, even though on the night was very disappointing. I was working to win back a riding in downtown Toronto that was an NDP stronghold for a long time. And up until even after the close of the polls, I mean, up until the first results came in, I really thought it was a sure win. And of course, we didn't even come close. The NDP was shut out of downtown Toronto. It's very disheartening. But thinking about the results, I guess, more removed from the disappointments of the night in the days after, I guess what I realized is actually it's encouraging that Trudeauism He's in power, but Trudeauism is sort of limping on in zombie-like fashion now. Like, it yeah. turns out that if you invest all your political capital in the personality of a single figure, particularly if they turn out to Remain be... with Mike, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, all the Gapesologists listening to the show should take note. Gapesism <laughs> is not the future, and Justin Trudeau is proof. But yeah, I mean, it's limping on in zombie Double form. Politics. I don't I don't think that it actually is going to be the kind of highly exportable model. And you've seen, actually, by the way, the attempts to copy it, particularly in the United States, how badly they failed. I just wrote a piece last week about Beto O'Rourke, he must have seen Trudeau and thought, we can do this, we can do this thing exactly. And of course, it didn't work at all. So if there's anything heartening in the result, it would be that. Absolutely. I hope it's Mayor Pete who drops out next, because I just find him to be a proper slimy bastard. Like, I can't, I can't be he's a He's this. a real, he's a real smart merchant. Yeah. final thing about Canadian politics. Did you see that Neil Young endorsed the Green Party in oh, the no. Canadian election? I wish you hadn't told me that. <laughs> so our Green Party, I mean, as I understand it, the British Green Party was sort of one of the places that you would go if you were on the left circa 2010. If you were perceptive enough to realize the Lib Dems were a totally stupid cause and you couldn't stomach campaigning to keep, you know, Gordon Brown in office or whatever, you'd, you'd go to the Greens. As I understand it from talking to folks on the Labour left, a lot of them just say, well, the Greens are still very middle class and there's kind of a yuppie yeah. streak and they're heavily based around the personalities of figures that people like, like Caroline Lucas. So our Green Party mm -hmm. is kind of like that, except it's actually a lot more incoherent. Their slogan was kind of like, not left, not right, but forward. Uh, they, they, And they're almost entirely a personality vehicle for their leader. They have very small parliamentary representation and they are sort of wrongly perceived by a lot of 
of people as being a sort of left-wing party. And in practice, like if you read their manifestos, I should say, you will see things that are left of center, but they don't really run on the left. And they also kind of have these weird positions that are like, we're not going to whip any votes or anything. So it's like they essentially have a platform and then they're just like, but we're not actually going to do anything to actualize it. And it's a very strange beast. And I'm actually kind of devastated <laughs> to hear that Neil uh. Young, uh, along with, I think, Pamela Anderson and a few other celebrities endorsed it. <laughs> Well, you know, Neil's a committed environmentalist. That's his number one priority. You know, he lives in America. He probably doesn't know much about Canadian politics. Knows that Trudeau's in the pocket of the fossil fuel companies. Yeah. And he probably just saw the Green Party. That sounds good. Read some of their environmental policies and went on his archives website. Did the endorsement, probably. You know, you can write Neil letters on his archives site. Um, oh answers them himself or at least a large amount of them anyway (laughs) every week or so there's a new batch of quote-unquote letters to the editor but i'm thinking of writing him one (laughs) trying to get him to endorse labor in this election be like look neil the tories are in the pockets of a pocket of the fossil fuel companies and (laughs) (laughs) try and really sell him on it but if it backfires and he discovers the british green party and endorses them i'll be really good Well, I think, yeah, we can wrap up now. I think we've gone on a bit longer than, than intended, but cheers for joining us, Luke. It's been really good, man. Yeah, thanks Oh, this, this was great fun. I mean, I could talk about this stuff for hours. I really enjoy it. And I can only bully my own co-host into doing <laughs> British politics things so many times. So re- yeah. really, really appreciate it. And to you guys and to all the Labour folks listening, good luck in the next few weeks. Thank if you. I can be extremely earnest for a second, I believe you'll win and I believe in all of you. So... Go get it. Ah, lovely. That's wonderful, man. And yeah, I would love to have you and Luke on to get... You and Luke, you are Luke. You and Will. You and Will. This is, of course, to listeners, this is Luke's Michael and us co-host, Will Sloan, who also hosts the great important cinema club podcast which i like very much it would be great to have the two of you on at some point to discuss roman polanski's the ghost writer for sure we'll uh, awesome. we'll, we'll make uh, we'll make that happen yeah sounds good cheers yeah. guys awesome man great to, to, talk to you Kinnock, a self-styled radical had grasped the torch from his friend and mentor michael foot also a man of the left Yet over the years to come, Kinnock would lead his party on a fraught and difficult journey to the right. In his youthful enthusiasm, he'd come to believe that this was the only way out of the political wilderness. But the ultimate prize would never be his. We got together in the evening, and the best way to manifest a sort of victorious joy was to sing. And uh, and so we sang. Uh, I suppose, I suppose it's either very British or very Welsh. Probably more Welsh. In times of celebration and mourning, at times of disaster and possible triumph, to resort to singing. Revolution, 